Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up, Laurie Penny. The journalist, author and screenwriter discusses her new book, Sexual Revolution, Modern Fascism and the Feminist Fightback. Our host for today is the cultural historian and broadcaster Shahida Bari. Here's Shahida with more. I imagine many of you already know Laurie. Laurie is a journalist, activist and political commentator. They are a culture writer for Wired magazine and they've been a contributing editor and columnist for The New Statesman. Um, They're a frequent writer, uh, as many of you will know, on social justice, pop culture, gender issues and digital politics for a variety of publications. They are the author of eight books, including The Bitch Doctrine, a series of essays on feminism and dissent, Unspeakable Things, a book on sex, lies and revolution, and Penny Red, writings on youth, politics, feminism and culture. They're also the youngest person ever to be shortlisted for the Orwell Prize. And today they'll be talking about their new book, Sexual Revolution, Modern Fascism and the Feminist Fight Back. Um, For the first 40 minutes or so, you and I are going to be in conversation. And then in the second half, we're going to take questions from our audience. Laurie, let's start by talking about the book. And I'm quite interested in the title, Sexual Revolution, Modern Fascism and the Feminist Fight Back. So first of all, who's doing the fighting? In a way, I wonder if it's for feminists like you and I who um, maybe already understand and see things or is it is it a, a work of agitation? Who, who was your reader in mind as you were writing this book? I love the phrase, a work of agitation, and we <laughs> steal it. Um, but actually, the reader I had in mind was the kind of, you know, they always say, write the book you needed when you were a teenager. And when I was a teenager, I was reading a lot of second wave feminism, actually, oddly, but I was reading a lot of works of feminist thought and theory that were not necessarily addressed to people who already had a grounding in feminist theory. And if you do, uh, reading the book, you can, you'll be able to see the influences. And it's it's meant to be a useful starting point for a lot of different debates that are going on about now and a lot going on now and a lot of different issues in terms of 
feminism and sex and gender and politics and consent. I had in mind a interested teenager plus. And I think if um, that's always, oddly, it's always one of the audiences that I I try and keep in mind, even though big books are not necessarily the only lifeline way to discover feminism as they were for me, you know, just before social media came in. And uh, I think that right through this book is a sense of the change that social media has brought to the world of gender and power and politics, because although it's very reductive to talk about the internet as one thing, but there's a lot of fear right now about the changes that new technology, new, new communications technology have wrought and how um, we're awash in misinformation and fake news and extremism. And it's easy to lose sight of why people originally believed that this was a technology of liberation, which it still is. I remember back in you know the early aughts, I didn't have a sense that there were people who thought the same way that I did about gender and power. And I certainly didn't have a sense that, en- that anything was still going on in terms of feminism or the writing that was my favourite feminist writing came from you know the, the mid-70s on. And I think now it's it's a lot easier and faster to find your people whoever they are, and to find and to educate yourself. And this book is meant to be an intervention in that space as well. Mm-hmm. But it's also, it, and, it's, and it bridges the gap, though, because sometimes it's even in that space where it's so fast and easy to find, to find and be part of those debates, a book is a useful thing because a book feels more permanent. It feels like a record of the times as well as a temporary intervention. Absolutely. When when you say a book is a useful thing, I, I like that phrase in turn. Um, when you say a book is a useful thing, what, what, what does your book want to accomplish? Are there things that it wants to achieve now that it, it is in, in the world? This book wants to start a lot of conversations and it also wants to draw a lot of links between, like if, um, if anybody here has already read it or, or got a copy, you'll see that there's a lot of different chapters and a lot of different things that we cover. Abortion rights, we cover, um, there's a whole chapter on beauty and body image, but then there's also chapters on men and chapters on the far right and how this book is meant to be a sort of a synthesis of how all of these things fit together, which obviously means that it can't be quite as comprehensive on any one topic. But that's what the, um, that's what the books I really loved when I was in my teens, did I'm thinking of you know Germaine Greer's books like The Whole Woman and uh, The Female Unit, which I still can't remember quite how I got hold of them so young, but I was really like when they say like uh, these things will be influencing your daughters to um, to think in radical weird ways, and you better keep them away from like I was that kid. <clears throat> I was the kid who loved second wave seventies feminism in the way that you can only love things when you're in your mid-teens you know I don't know if anybody here like you hear the songs that you loved when you were 15 suddenly come on the radio or in a shop and you just transported back to that that's what I was trying to get at that kind of agitation and rabble rising which I was kind of born a bit too late for and it still feels a little bit retro but it's yeah it's trying to be comprehensive in terms of topics it covers rather than going into depth on any one subject Mm-hmm. If we think of the feminists that you read and liked, you talked about a second wave generation, you talked about Jermaine Greer and the female eunuch. If we think of them as the songs of your youth that you liked, who were the feminists? Which were the books that have a bearing influence on this book, do you think? Well, in terms of writing style, Jermaine Greer, Andrea Dworkin, I 
discovered bell hooks, the late bell hooks, when I was uh, in my late teens, early 20s, hugely influential. Oddly, also literary writers like Angela Carter and Jeanette Winderson were a huge, huge influence. Um, I came to anti-racist and intersectional feminism a little later, and I came to it like I came to um, to socialism and, uh, and uh, a sense of historical materialism through feminism was my entry point to all of these things because it in many ways it's not something a point I'm trying to get across in the book is that um and I know there's been pushback on the fact that I write about feminism and race even though I'm a white woman there's been pushback about that um from white readers and reviewers and um it's meant to be I don't know why I think it's meant to be like like not my place like if you're a white person you're meant to this is something that you know it's not part of like normal politics still in the UK. I don't know it's meant to exist mm. in this little I think that's interesting. I don't know what I don't know quite if it's polite to finish that sentence. Yeah. But yeah, the um that I had that education slightly later and I had that mainly via the internet. So the first intersectional and anti-racist feminist writing I read was was often from American writers actually before you had the kind of great resurgence in British anti-racist feminist writing in um, about five or six years ago, which has been like it, which has been wonderful to watch. Yeah, uh, you've taken me into to thinking about feminism and politics. You, you were saying that feminism was your entry point into socialism and historical materialism, and of course, this book is about feminism and modern fascism in particular. I what I think the book begins with a proposition, which is that we are. We are living through a sexual revolution right now. That's that's what you're saying. Which is so it's interesting to think about your your feminist hinterland and those other moments of sexual revolution and those writers thinking about that. I wonder why we should believe that we are living through a sexual revolution right now. What is it right now that is so sexually revolutionary? Well, when people think about revolution, they generally think of I don't know, scenes out of Lamez. Things <laughs> um, like great, you know, of you know, physical violence and people rioting in the streets, and of course, that's often part of revolutionary times and, and actions. But they used to say in the sixties that revolution is in the head, and I still, I do believe that. But not that I was around in the sixties. <laughs> I'm trying to sound like I'm, I, I was there. I wasn't actually at Woodstock, but I believe that revolution, particularly feminist revolution, often happens. There, a lot of change has happened without people noticing or naming it properly. And what this book seeks to do is just to name what's already happened. Like for example, one of the things that's coming up more and more as more and more statistics and reports come out is the huge unprecedented drop in birth rates around the global north. And that seems to have come as a surprise to a lot of policymakers. But if you've been watching trends in the different choices that women and girls have been making in their lives and the resistance that that people have faced when they try to do things like balance paid work with childcare with actually trying to have a life. No woman with kids I know is is actually surprised when you talk about the drop off in birth rates um, over the past. I know it's been it's been going down steadily over the past decade, but over the past two or three years during COVID, it's just fallen off a cliff and is and is still there's no uptick. And um, rates of divorce are increasing. And there has been a real solid sea change in women's choices in, and women's real options, not just in terms of legal choices, when it comes to being able to simply walk away from the old deal of heterosexuality and walk away from what Carol Pateman calls the sexual contract. 
And that is changing everything. I think Paul Mason in his um, in his recent book uh, calls it a, a reproductive shock. Mm-hmm. And, and it is a total change in how fertility is controlled in society and how reproductive labor is organized. And this reproductive labor for, I imagine most people know what that means, but just in case, it means all the work of life making that is done in society, not just having kids or even just raising kids, but also looking after people who are not so able to look after themselves, maintaining households, domestic work, organizing, all of that stuff. There is a necessary work. There is a real sea change in in who is coerced into doing that and who is able to say, no, I'm not doing that just at the time when more and more of that work is being privatized and uh, there's less and less collective, like less and less collective commitment to making sure that work of life making happens. For example, over the past 10 years and more in the UK, there's been an enormous, um, enormous cutbacks in terms of, of the welfare tech state, social security, childcare, all of the artifacts of life making that thread society together. And it took COVID in some ways to make us see how literally essential all that work has always been. But Maybe COVID has made it possible for us to see that as a society, but there don't seem to have been many actual changes yet. And and often there is that gap. And, you know, I'm 35 at the moment. I'm from a cohort of people who are having to make the big decisions right now about whether to have kids, about what kind of partnerships they want to live in. And a lot of people are just looking at the lack of movement and looking at how of how hard it is already for people to raise kids in this kind of economic climate and in this kind of precarity and go and just, nah, rather not. People who are ambivalent about having kids are now much likely to, much more likely not to have kids than they were before. And that's something that generations of male policymakers have no answer for because it's not part of their worldview and it's going to cause a massive crisis. That's what I mean when I talk about revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and those changes, we we barely even have the language to describe them in society, let alone figure out what we're going to do about them. Because, you know, in the US, they've just had another big round of debates where they've tried to finally push through, as part of a, ra- a raft of policies, they've tried to finally push through maternity leave, paid maternity leave, which they, they just don't have a right a right to in the US and it didn't go through. And the birth rates are falling in the US as fast as anywhere else. And the only solution, even under a Biden presidency, the only solution um, the uh, American policymakers have is to ban abortion. That's it. And I don't think that's going to cut it. You've been talking about reproductive labour and reproductive rights. Uh, I wonder if we could talk about sex for a moment. At the beginning of the book, you talk about the Me Too movement and and the actor Alyssa Milano proposing a sex strike as a response. And you argue that consent is a form of sex strike. And a large part of this book is about you formulating an idea of consent. What do you mean by this idea that consent could be a form of sex strike? Well, I mean, that is one way of of reading what I'm saying about consent in the book specifically. So what Alyssa Milano was suggesting is that until conditions are improving and until sexual violence stops happening, women around the world should just refuse to have sex with men, full stop, which I think is both a bit of a silly idea and something that people won't actually do. People aren't going to do that. Let's be real. Um, people don't want to do that. People want to have sex. All kinds of people of all kinds of genders want to have sex. 
And any sort of revolutionary movement or any movement that seeks social change that starts on the basis of controlling women's sexuality, which a lot of modern conservative feminist movements do. Um, Alyssa Milano isn't, I don't think she's a conservative, but a lot of modern feminist movements increasingly talk about controlling women's behavior and controlling women's sexuality as their starting point. I think that's regressive and dangerous and misses the point. But the sex strike that is happening already, I think, is not women, straight women refusing to have sex. It's straight women refusing to have sex with men who are violent or don't respect them or don't treat them like human beings. And that is, that's a sex strike that's been going on for a while now as women just have more and more options. A couple of hundred years ago, women basically had to put up with the least violent man they could find. We don't have to do that anymore. And patriarchy still can't come to terms with that fact. Can you spell that out? Because this is also one of the quite striking or resting propositions of the book, which is that rape culture has been or is instrumental to functioning economies. That's what you, you, you argue. What does that mean? What do you mean by that? Well, when we talk about rape culture, which um, obviously, um, again, a lot of this book is slightly, maybe it's 102. It's it's not 101, it's 102, something like that. It's um, But it's it, a lot of this book explains stuff to some people who may already know, but just in case you don't, rape culture isn't a culture in which rape is common. It's a culture in which rape is normalized and accepted. Um, and I know it can, can feel quite controversial to say rape is accepted in this society, but if you look at the figures for how many violent sexual assaults and rapes actually result in a conviction, even of those that are actually that are brought to the police at all, you will see that rape is functionally legal in a lot of in a lot of the global north, a lot of countries. And um, people know that in many cases it's not worth bringing a rape case to trial. The justice system has really no answer for violence against women and in particular for sexual violence against women and children. And what that does, it's not simply about sex. Um, it's also about sex, but it's not just about sex. What that, what rape culture does is it functions as a form of discipline. It controls the behavior of women and girls and children. It says that it is your responsibility to guard against rape. Rape could happen to you at any time. And uh, and it it asks women and girls to to behave as if any man is a potential rapist. Um, the idea that all men are rapists didn't come from feminism, it came from patriarchy. Um, and uh, except feminists were the first people to name it. And that again, um, side note, a lot of conservative culture right now is made up of people who are just incredibly angry at hearing themselves accurately described. <laughs> and um, I don't know. Um, but um, rape culture as a disciplinary function means is it controls women's behavior. It controls the behavior of girls and people of all kinds, all different genders. And it's part of a system whereby women's behavior and women's sexuality is instrumentalized as a form of economic dependence on men, if that makes sense. I believe that was a complete sentence. And yes, if so, it was pretty proud of myself. <laughs> it was. I... <laughs> 
you're doing really well and the hard questions are going to keep coming but only because this is such an interesting conversation one of the the arguments you make in the book is that to change the culture of consent we have to move from talking about rules or maybe the kind of discipline you were talking about about rules and to instead start talking about ethics what does ethics mean here what what does it look like who establishes these ethics well, that's now a question with a more complicated answer, partly because I don't know what you did in pan- in the pandemic in the sort of like alone in pandemic times. I had a good few months, but I listened to a lot of podcasts about political philosophy mm-hmm. and the definition of ethics. So I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but I spent a lot of time down there. It's, uh, <laughs> but in the book, when I'm talking about rules versus ethics, I'm talking about rules as a set of instructions for how to behave and uh, ethics as a set of principles. So if the rule is, for example, you always hold the door for for somebody else rather than slamming it in their face, the principle is other people matter and just because you got somewhere ahead of them doesn't mean you should slam a door in their face. And if the rules, so when that applies to consent, right? People, especially around the beginning of the Me Too movement, but still people ask me like, what do I do? How do I make sure my partner is fully consenting. And there's been all these mad sort of ideas, like, you know, an app where you can sign something <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. it's blessed. Like, obviously it's terrible in some ways, but I, I do love, there's a certain purity to a kind of like very earnest, well-meaning tech bros just trying to find an app that will fix <laughs> this. It's like, if we could have fixed 2,000 years of messed up patriarchal nonsense with an app, it would exist already. But it's a bit bigger than that. But rules of consent are like, you know, should you ask every time you want to do something new? But the ethic is, and the principle is that women's sexuality is as valid as men's sexuality. And and sexuality is not something that women own and control and men have to sort of wheedle out of women, which is still a fundamental assumption of heterosexuality. More and more in the last 30, 40 years of... um, I know there'll probably be people who cringe when you hear me say neoliberalism, but it means that a culture in which everything is reduced to the logic of the market, sexuality itself has become something that men are supposed to just acquire, something that men are supposed to get from women within like the deal of heterosexuality. So women are sort of hoarding, hoarding all the sex, like greeting, greedy dragons, and men have to sort of somehow persuade persuade the women to give them little bits of it. And that's just, well, first it's, it's about the least erotic thing I've ever heard, uh, apart from the bit with the dragon, which isn't mandatory. Like, <laughs> we love dragons, so um, maybe you found a bit more about me than I was intending to <laughs> on this call. But it's also, it, it's really depressing. It's mm-hmm. not, sex is something you do with other people, not something you can you can give someone as an object. I, I think I'm asking unfairly hard questions here. I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard to establish what an ethics could be. And and also I think it's unfair to ask a writer to have an argument, but also know how to implement that argument. I think you know that's that's the world and that's life. I think that's that's hard. <laughs> but um I think it's unfair to ask a writer to have any balance any kind of workable political solutions for anything, because if that was what we were best at, we wouldn't be sitting writing theory books and we'd be doing other useful things. <laughs> I agree, I agree. It was unfair for me to ask it. I guess I'm just wondering whether from your position, thinking about this and 
theorising about it, whether you have any suggestions about who establishes ethics and how do you how do you develop a consensus about how those ethics are enacted? How do you disseminate? I mean, you were joking about tech bros and apps, but I, I'm I'm asking as, as a kind of thought experiment, what does it look like? How do we develop that consensus that this is what a sexual, an ethics around sexual consent looks like and this is how you enact it? That is another hard question. <laughs> no, but like you know, it's 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 amazing to like to chat to people who who've actually read it and engaged with it. It's like it's it's just it's wonderful, honestly. And I'm and I apologize if like my answers are going into like I've had to ban. Do you ever have to ban yourself from theory words? Um, <laughs> yes, I, but I'm banned from hegemony. Okay, but this is because I don't know how to say it. This I don't think there is no consensus on that. I think hard G or soft G. But this is an intelligence squared uh, audience who we know are are high uh, functioning adults who can handle difficult words like hegemony or hegemony. But let me ask you um, a different question then, because I think we can come back to what this ethics looks like. I think maybe this is something that will develop in our conversation. But I'm interested in asking you about masculinity because you also try to pay attention to that in the book. you, you say, um, you write, right, right now you, you write, a, a lot of men and boys I know are bewildered. They are uncomfortable. They are wrestling the spectre of their own wrongdoing. And I wondered, is that right? Are, um, are most men, are a lot of men in crisis? What do you, is that your experience? Is that what you're saying? Kind of, yes, actually. And, and maybe this is, um, I'm talking about men I know and men and boys I've met, but Actually, a lot of this book came out of not just the Me Too movement, but my particular experience of the Me Too movement, which as I had my last book come out around that time, and a lot of men and boys were wanted to genuinely, not to, obviously I got a lot of people yelling at me, but I also, you know, people who were genuinely wanted to talk were genuinely confused about what to do because they thought they were doing the right thing. And it turns out they were, and that is very, I've been thinking a lot about it recently, but it is, it is genuinely hard to live with collective guilt. And I think there is a sense of collective guilt, not just, I mean, within, uh, within white culture, within, um, certainly within modern masculinity, a sense that women and girls are finally talking about suffering and about how unfair and difficult the basic deals of life and the basic formula of the gender binary has been for us for so long. Women and girls are talking about how shitty dating can be, how unfair um, domestic partnership can be. And suddenly we're talking about it in a way that men can hear and they can't ignore. And we're talking about it to each other in public. Like One of the things about privilege and one of the things about being part of a privileged group historically has been that you you don't have to be confronted with what other people suffer because of hierarchies of oppression. And the thing that, that's why when people call for civility, what they're actually calling for is, and, and you heard this a lot around the Too movement, is that women are going too far. Why don't you put it a bit nicer? You know, why don't you why don't you behave more respectfully? You heard the same thing around the Black Lives Matter movement. It's like why you're just out of control. Why are you so angry? Why are you attacking us? Because there are lots of people, and I think this is, I honestly think for various reasons, this is particularly true in Britain, that being made aware of harm and damage that you have participated in, even against your will, even without your knowledge, that is received as an attack. 
So when I say to you, Shahada, you did something that really hurt me. That's if, if we're talking about this, um, you ask me a very hard question. It hurt me so much. Like mm-hmm. that is perceived as, you know, if we're talking within that framework, that's perceived as an attack on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it can't, it can't be seen in any other way. And I think the men I respect most within all of these conversations and what the men I respect most in general aren't the men who have never, ever, ever, ever done anything wrong because they don't exist. Like everybody who was raised within systems of oppression, so everybody in the world has at one time or another done something messed up by accident to somebody else. Um, It's the people who are really trying to think around it and trying to not center themselves as part of that conversation and, and just sitting with their own guilt and their own pain and not making that somebody else's problem as well, not lashing out because of a sense of guilt and actually use, listening to it, listening to what it's telling. And that is not something that men and boys are ever taught. I was reading recently, um, I'm a huge, I'm a huge reader of science fiction and, and um, I was recently reading a book by Ursula Le Guin called The Telling. And she's a fantastic, fascinating writer and she loves to talk about different alien societies because she was, she's an anthropologist and she just loves to make, make up different societies and and ask how life could be and she's invented a mythology system where heroism isn't based on violence and it isn't based on great feats of con- feats of conquests and the most important thing you can do as a hero the word for hero in this made up alien culture is the same as person who has atoned for a great role like for me to me that is heroism and that kind of genuine attempt to address and to change the world both within yourself and within just like society around you, that that is worth far more than just you know never doing anything wrong. And I think that's um, I don't know if this was a note behind your question, but one of the things that does produce a sense of crisis, and like I know this in myself, is a sense that nobody is allowed to make mistakes ever again, and any mistake that anybody makes will be like sort of swooped on and you'll be publicly shamed. And so it's, it's not worth even trying. Mm-hmm. And um, there is a there there, if you see what I mean. Like the, it's not untrue that all kinds of culture, of culture, not just progressive culture, can be quite Puritan, mm-hmm. I think is the word, can be quite, um, there's a sense of hunting for sin. I would say that, that isn't, it's not just the left that does that. But um, when the centre-right and when uh, traditional institutions of power act like Puritans and uh, punish, roll-think and shut people out who don't look right or don't sound right, that it doesn't register as cancel culture and it doesn't register as mob justice. That's just how the world is. I wonder if you have an idea of what the alternative to modern masculinity is what does there's there's a nice phrase in the book where you you say modern masculinity is a ponzi scheme i think that's very interesting that it is something it's a a culture or set of behaviors that asks others to buy into it with diminishing returns but i wonder what you think the alternative to modern masculinity is what it looks like. I know you talk about queer identity as being inherently anti-authoritarian, perhaps they're connected, but what does modern masculinity look like, do you think, or could look like? I think you're completely right to draw out the bit where 
I, I strongly believe that um, masculinity and capitalism are linked in the way they're formulated. And uh, modern capitalism, the ideals of modern capitalism and, and neoliberal capitalism, or post-neoliberal capitalism, are the highest ideals are dominating other people. Treating other people is fine and with modern capitalism. It didn't used to be part of the kind of logic of masculinity and capital, but it is now. That's why you know, we love a scammer. Scammers are heroes. I've been watching uh, Inventing Anna, and it's fantastic. It's yeah. actually more Or the show. Tinder swindler, like, not to... <gasps> exactly. <laughs> um, not to be right. um, If you can cheat other people and humiliate other people, um, that is, that's an acceptable part of a a sense of uh, modern moral values that are, um, you just look at the leaders we elect. I mean, look at the people at the, at the, at the heart of government right now. These are people whose the ideal and the logic of dominance, it's not about decency or strength or fair dealing. It's about what can you get? What can you cheat other people out of? And how can you be the strongest and the richest and the most powerful by flattening everybody else? And that is, um, well, firstly, it's very upsetting to realize that you live in that kind of world and not, certainly not all men and boys feel comfortable with it. It's a a terrifying world to be raised in as a little boy. Um, I've talked to a lot of men who have told me, you know, that masculinity, frankly, scares them. And always did when they were little, that they were they were expected to be this, you know, powerful, dominant thing, particularly younger men right now. If you look at how younger men are are reacting to there's a lot of chat about pornography and how it's we probably don't have time to go into porn culture, but um what is it what young men think is expected of them from watching mainstream pornography, by which I mean the porn that you can get on Red Sheep for free, um, not the actual Lex. The, every kind of porn you can imagine is on the internet. Um, but when we talk about the mainstream rhetoric of porn is, and of straight porn is is very, very violent. And like little boys think that that is now what's expected of them more and more. And uh, people who've done studies and talked to, they're, God bless the researchers who go out and talk and manage to actually talk to 14 year old boys about what they think about sex because they're they're all everybody who's ever managed to write a successful book of that has like deep mum energy, which I really, really love. Um Peggy Orenstein, I completely love her as a philosopher and a writer. But um yeah, that sense that modern masculinity is a like modern capitalism is a system of a system of dominance where the prize goes to the biggest bastard basically is um it's a ponzi scheme because if it's based on dominance then you can't um then there can only be so many winners and it's just, if it's a system of winners and losers then it's also a system that creates an enormous number of losers and there is really no answer for what you're meant to do in society if you are a loser under the terms of modern masculinity and yeah. A lot of the rage that's boiling out of the new far right is a reaction to that. One of the reasons that frustrated entitlement and that sort of that despairing energy that's it, that is so that is so loud in modern masculinity. One of the reasons that is linked to the far right is that there are really no other options. There's nothing offered instead. If dominance is the only language where masculinity can express itself, and and violent dominance. Then there is no, yeah, there's no answer for how to be, for how, for what you're meant to do 
when you've lost in the terms of that deal. Yeah. That's why so many modern masculinist leaders like are offering people a sense of restored pride and um and uh, they're offering to bring back to give back something that was taken. Yeah. I, I think we're getting into the the heart of the book, the way in which you're you're trying to position feminism as an antidote to fascism um, so this seems like a good moment to turn to our audience and try to feed in some of their questions i have plenty of other questions to ask you laurie which i will try to slip in as well but let's hear from the audience first um the first question is um you talk a lot about men taking responsibility do you think there are areas of life where women and non-cis white men should step up that's an interesting question thank you I don't believe that, look, I'm, I'm trying to find a nice way of saying this, okay? I'm trying to find a nice way of, because it's, it is a valid question. And I'm not saying that women and queer people of all genders and identities don't have to have any responsibility as people in life, that we're somehow like helpless babies and um, we can't be held responsible for anything to do with gender and inequality. But I honestly don't believe... I think, of course, we need to step up, but we already are. And what's the crisis is coming because men, and in particular white cis men, are just refusing to meet us. You know, women are, if we, even if we just talk about women in here, like looking at women my age, they are doing the most. They are burned out and exhausted, and they are trying their best to create and to live. Like Alistair Gray says, um, it must work as if you lived in the early days of a better nation. And I see the young women around me, well, my age, youngish. Um, I see the young women around me doing that and trying to live in the worlds, even the world we were promised as kids, where there is genuine gender inequality. And I see it if I'm if I think of people who are not stepping up and not doing the work, it's not women and queer people I think of. I think of I think of women and queer people as not only stepping up, but also having to fill in the gaps where most cis men are not stepping up. And uh, unfortunately, uh, that does give most cis men a bad rap. And that's kind of part of the problem. That's how Mm -hmm. modern masculinity works. If you're you're one of the few exceptions, then you've broken the rules of Fight Club. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's take another question. Do you believe the sexual revolution you are calling for is already underway? And are you optimistic about it? There's a longer answer than yes and kinda, but yes and kinda is kind of the answer there. So, like, yeah, it's absolutely it's happening. It's been happening for many, many years now. And um, look, if you um, I am optimistic, but I'm not necessarily optimistic for. I'm not optimistic for the immediate future, the very short-term future. I think it's still going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. But if you look at, for example... Why do you say that? I'm just ask, ask, out of interest, why do you say that? Well, it's hard because I'm talking from a position of somebody who is... Um, I'm in a very happy relationship. I've, uh, I got married a couple of years ago, which was very unexpected. Whole different story there. But um, like, I, I look around and I see a lot of... Just the straight women I know, I see a lot of them. It's just a little bit too late in terms of modern patriarchy to live the lives that they were kind of, that we were promised. And I see a lot of people having to make decisions under duress and people who are facing things like, well, maybe we could have kids within the next few years if we were prepared to date absolutely anyone 
including people who might be violent, including people who we just don't get along with that well. And, you know, I'm seeing, I think it will, I think change will come, but it may not come quickly enough for some of our generation. And I think there is at the moment a great, a huge, like a, a who blinks first happening within, you know, men as a whole are sort of refusing to budge, refusing to step up, not doing the work, electing fascists, voting against abortion, going on rampages, shooting up schools. Um, and not as a whole, but like, honestly, the treatment of incels and the reaction to that has been very, very telling over the last few years, because although obviously we all condemn the violence and we wouldn't go that far, but there is a sense in which those young men are sort of saying the quiet bit out loud. And you saw kind of respectable columnists in, you know, newspapers and across the world saying like, well, obviously these young men are very troubled, but don't they have a point? Kind of like, isn't there something to, you know, women are just being selfish and you know, don't women owe men something fundamentally? Why are all these men so miserable? Whereas women and queer people have generally been socialized to believe that their violence, if they were to dare to be violent in any way, it would not go very well for, for them, for us at all. And women and queer people are not shooting up schools and they're not electing fascists and they're not refusing to play in that very loud, tantrumy, angry, violent way. What they're doing is just walking away from relationships. They're just mm -hmm. not getting married, not having kids and focusing on trying to live the best life they can in the circumstances. And that itself, that is far more revolutionary than the angry incel boys. It is going to create far more long-lasting social change. It's already done. You just look at the amount of people my age who are just, they've not had kids. They're never going to have kids. They've not got married. Maybe they might not ever get married. They're focusing on a different kind of life. That will create social change on a, on a far more wide-reaching, long-term scale than like the angry insult, and I am aware that um, that's a much longer answer than yes and no. kinda. <laughs> that's the point of the book. Um, let, let's move on to another question. Um, you've you've really started talking about pornography. H here's a question about that. Do you think there should be some kind of curbs on pornography on the internet? Well. Um, I'd be interested in, in who's asked this question. Thank you for it. Again, the short answer is no, but that's it's that's too simple an answer. There there are already curbs on online porn, and of course there are there there are rightly um, criminal statutes in place for people who are engaged in you know, pornography involving or featuring children in any way, which um, is uh, yeah. I do believe that there are some forms of pornography which not just depict violence, but they, they, they cause violence to be done in making them, um, and they, which can never, ever be ethical, ever, ever, ever. Um, but in terms of online pornography, there have been a lot of movements in the past 10 years to restrict online porn, and none of them have really worked, particularly because, um, because the pornography that they usually target is, is not actually the porn that's doing the harm. Often the Weirdly, I did some, actually did a couple of reports on this um, when the most recent porn laws were coming through. It was just after the, in the first coalition Tory-led government. But there is a weird obsession with cracking down on SNM sites, particularly with cracking down on female domination sites. Like if you looked at the list of like the first list of the first few hundred websites that were like taken off and blocked, a lot of them were like, they weren't, you know, 
um, what you think of when you think of like an, an evil pornographer. They were mistress so-and-so who in the daytime has, you know, a job in a shop and works from her bedroom getting uh, men to, telling men they're terrible people, which they enjoy, and then making them buy her shoes, which she will then sell to pay her rent. Like, it's, um, I deeply respect that kind of work. I know a couple of people who do it. I can never do it myself, but I'm like, go with God. Absolutely, <laughs> mistress so-and-so. Great. But the restrictions on it, it's... It's complicated because um, a lot of the restrictions that are put in place around por- things like pornography, things like um, uh, even things like uh, online fraud or um, cybercrime are sort of ways for governments to justify broader surveillance technology. And there's, there are lots of big cultural differences around this, but you will often see, Funnily enough, the only time that right-wing governments ever tend to care about online violence against women, online harassment of women, is when uh, when that's brought up as a reason to um, to make sure nobody can ever be anonymous online. But I don't think there's an answer. I mm-hmm. think like just saying curbs on pornography might not really work the way we want it to. That's not a complete answer. Just saying this thing won't work. And I do get your question of, I absolutely understand what you're trying to get at, that there is something really dark and scary happening within pornography. And I know pe- I know a lot of people who have made porn or been involved in as, as porn actors, and every one of them I know would agree that um that there is something happening. And um Stoyer, who was a he was a wonderful activist as well as some uh, former porn actress, um, has this line where she says, um trying to learn about uh, trying to learn how to have sex from watching porn is like trying to learn how to drive from watching monster truck rallies right and part of the problem is that we're actually quite a sexually conservative culture apart from pornography and so there is this disconnect where everyday life is like this weird you can't talk about it and porn is like sex happens in this weird porn world where there's never any stakes there's never any plot. There's never any human drama. It's just this sort of weird factory of people just hammering each other into submission. I mean, that's not the nature of pornography. That's the nature of a certain kind of modern porn. Mm-hmm. I consume pornography. The pornography that I enjoy is mainly written by nice... It's, it's written and it's mainly about vampires, fairies, werewolves, vampire fairies or werewolf vampires and set in the Victorian age and it's gay. It's wonderful. And um, like that is still pornography, but it's not that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about well, I hope not. If if they come from my vampire world with fairy porn, then we'll be hell to pay. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna come back to to not quite vampire sex, but maybe it's a more radical sex in a, in a moment. But let me feed in a couple of questions more from the audience before we we end. Uh, perhaps these two questions are also impossible to answer, but they're, they're sort of in a way perhaps they're the same question, um, if I may say so. So one is: should there be amnesty for men? And then the second from Arnie. 
um, white heterosexual able-bodied males are the most endangered species on the planet? Question mark. So are they endangered and should there be an amnesty for men? I mean, I think they're both coming from the same place, those questions. In a I'd way. love to ask, will I answer the first one? I'd love to ask what um, Arnie means by endangered. I don't know if Arnie has a space to answer, but let's imagine he thinks that men are somehow under some sort of assault or, or something. Um, I think... Um, White, heterosexual, cisgender, able-bodied men are... I don't think they're the most endangered. I think they feel they're the least used to having their identity questioned and being under... Like, uh, Franklin Leonard has this line, um, when you're used to... When you're used to privilege, uh, equality feels like like an attack, and, and it's not. But I think there is definitely a sense, and I believe that this is... I truly believe that this is partly an affect of technology as much as gender relations. And I have, there's other writing I'm going to be doing about on my Substack, which people might want to join if, because it's some, it's, it's some new stuff I've been working on since I handed in the book. But there is definitely a sense that nothing you can ever do will ever be forgiven. And that's not just true for, um, for men. It's true for, um, it's true for lots of different people. And I've, you know, look, I've certainly had, I've certainly had many, many moments when I've been very, very glad that uh, Twitter, I wasn't on Twitter before I was 24. I'd got most of my real crazy stuff out the way. But look, like once upon a time, 10 years ago, I did an event with David Starkey where it was the worst event I've ever done. I was underslept. I was jet lagged. David Starkey came up and yelled at me. And rather than being a smooth debater, I cried. I think I actually cried. And Every day, every single day, somebody tweets that video at me multiple times. Like that was over 10 years ago and I'm never, ever allowed to forget. And I think the sense that your sins will find you out and anything you ever do that's, that's, that was like ignoble or even, I mean, I, I didn't do anything wrong there apart from just mess up a debate and make a fool of myself. I stand by what I actually said. I just should have pronounced it better without just breaking down. <laughs> Um, but the sense that nothing bad that you have ever done will ever be forgiven or forgotten, that is a new one for people in certain positions of power. But people of colour are certainly incredibly used to it. Um, women are used to it. The more power you have in society, the more you expect a certain automatic forgiveness. But I also believe that there should be more forgiveness for everyone. I think there should be amnesty for everyone. I think everybody, currently we don't have an answer within culture for how is anybody supposed to be allowed to change and grow and say, well, maybe this thing I did a few years ago was was really fucked up. Sorry for swearing at intelligence, but maybe this was like for saying like, I did some shitty, awful things or I just like said something that was wrong. I think there should absolutely i think there should be more of that and i think right now we don't have the answer because unfortunately the kind of what people call cancel culture or mob justice or the sort of public shaming aspect and the idea that nothing that you know there will never be forgiveness for making a mistake that kind of creation of consequences has been it's violent and and ugly in some ways and it has also been the only thing that has created change like i mean look, for me i I think I put this in the book, but like I have had several times over the past 
12 years of being like a sometimes a young and dumb person on the internet really trying hard to learn everything I could I've had several times where I've really messed up and said something really foolish about race not not necessarily racist but not not racist because of ignorance you know, I think I once, 10 years ago, there was a, a highly publicized rape case in Steuberville, um, uh in the US. And I said, uh, I think I believe I said that uh, this girl, this is the new Emmett Till, if you know who Emmett Till is, you know, the, the victim in the civil rights movie, very young boy who was, who was lynched. And, um, and that was a really just culturally ignorant, messed up thing to say. You could tell what I was getting at, which made it worse. And like, and there was a huge backlash to that. And there have also been backlashes. I've had backlashes to things that I've said that have just been massively taken out of context that I didn't even say. And that has been painful every time. And I'm also less racist as a result. And I take more, I would like to think, and I do like to think that if I weren't kind of terrified of what people of color on the internet will say to me if I get something wrong. I would like to think that if I didn't have that sense of like, I go and watch it, that I would, that I would have come to that naturally. Mm-hmm. And that I'd be the kind of person who would just automatically have learned all the things I've had to really learn really fast. But I don't know. I don't know that. And who can? Like, and I think it's, and, I, and I'm not actually, I'm quite a, I can be a moral coward with these things. And honestly, when I look at, when I listen to people saying, will there be amnesty and, and saying this is the worst possible thing that can happen? I think, think some very, like, I think, I think it's a cowardly way to behave. Mm-hmm. I think it's cowardly. I think people who are, people for whom, as somebody who's been cancelled multiple times by multiple different kinds of groups, I think people for people who use that as an excuse to not even try to change i think that's cowardice Mm -hmm. just quickly because we are completely out of time what what gives you uh, just very quickly what what are you optimistic about for modern feminism in its fight back against fascism i think that one of the things i'm optimistic about is that i i don't think it's ever going back in its box what a lot of these neo-masculinists and 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 far-right movements really seem to want is you know, a return to traditional values, which means women in their place. It means marriage is forever and um, there's no divorce and you, it's, uh, there's no, you can't be gay, you can't be queer, you definitely can't be trans. And, uh, you know, women who have sex outside marriage are sluts and all of those things. And it means they want Gilead, basically. And I just don't think it's ever going to happen without yeah. uh, without massive, massive social change, which we I don't think the public has a stomach before, that is not going to happen. But I think it would just be hard to live in that tension for the next few years. Yeah. Also, I yeah. love Gen Z, they're fantastic. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you, Laurie Penny. And thank you also to our delightful, clever, highly intelligent, Intelligent Squared audience. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.